Good morning, everybody. Thank you for allowing me to come into your church, uh, into your home this morning from our church. This is brand new for me and for our church, too. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be allowed to do the first one of these. I, I think uh, maybe because I'm the new guy around here, the pastor, White, and Pastor Jared uh, made me, I mean, let me <laughs> Uh, be the first guy to do this. So this is different for me, and I've been praying that God would help me by faith to know that there are people that are sitting at home watching this today that have a lot of needs, a lot of questions, and um, it's just always best to look into God's Word and and, and to know that, uh, that you're in charge of everything. Um, last Sunday, uh, the pastor was supposed to preach on the second word of uh, statement of Christ on the cross, and uh, he opted to preach from Psalm 91, uh, verses 1 through 11, which was very fitting, I thought, and I think it's fitting this morning that I that I read it again. Before I do, let's say a prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness and for loving us and for saving us, and we know through all of this, Lord, that you are in control. You are my God. You made this world and everything in it, and you made us. And I just uh, uh, thank you, Lord, that a long time ago I put my faith and trust in you. And may everybody hear these words this morning, Lord, do the very same thing. And may they sit back just for a little while and listen to a preacher preach and uh, to try to remind them uh, something that is uh, wonderful from God's word as we look into this series of sermons on uh, famous last words, uh, Christ's words on the cross. Blessings on them, I pray right now in Jesus' name. Amen. So last Sunday, uh, Pastor White read this text. I thought it might, it was very fitting. I thought it would be fitting to read again. It's Psalms 91. So if you read the Word of God very much, it's, it's, it's probably one of your favorites. Let's take time to read it. Psalms 91, verses 1 through 11. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Man, you just got to love that line. That just stands out from almost anything else in the Bible. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God. In him will I trust. Surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shall you trust. His truth shall be thy shield and thy buckler. And thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor the arrow that flieth by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked, because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee, to keep thee in all thy ways. Many times when facing unsure circumstances, I put myself through a little exercise. And you might just do well to learn it and uh, do it also. I remind myself of a particular promise in God's word, and then I force myself to face two facts. One, he either said it or he didn't say it. And I ask myself, what do you think? Well, I know he said it because it's in his word. And then I say, number two, he either meant it or he didn't mean it. And I have to admit that I know he doesn't lie. He means it. 
It's still important. Hebrews 10 and 23 says, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. May the good Lord bless and keep you in uncertain times. Now, if you've been around me very much since I came to Elm Grove, I'm the, some of you may be thinking, who is that guy? And if you don't know who I am, I'm Barry Prock, and I'm the uh, new guy on staff here. Uh, um, I'm uh, Pastor Jared's father-in-law and Jenny's dad, and um, we've been... We've been here for just two weeks, but uh, we, we spent the whole month of February just coming over and visiting with you. So we got to know a lot of you and already love you and just feel like part of this family. Uh, but if you, if you know me very well, been around me very, very long, you know that if, if you're around me, you, I make people laugh. I, that's what I always do. I like, I like to laugh. Uh, I don't tell jokes. I'm not any good at telling jokes. I tell funny stories or I tell stories for funny. I don't know which. Now, my son-in-law can tell jokes. He was my youth pastor for a year. and Every Sunday morning before I would preach, he would come up and get things started. And he'd always tell a joke. That man could tell the oldest, dumbest joke that everybody has heard and make people laugh. I can't do that. But that's okay. Uh, um, there's not much funny in this in this uh, story anyway. We're, we're talking about Christ's words on the cross, so there's really nothing to laugh at. Um, Pastor White and Pastor Jared began a series of sermons for Easter. It's entitled Famous Last Words. It concerns the six statements of Jesus as he was on the cross. Um, statement number three fell to me. Uh, it is, woman, behold thy son. I remember the first time I read it. I, I read it and I started trying to figure out why that was in there in the Bible and it seemed out of place. And I thought Jesus was saying, woman, take a look at me. Behold your son. But you read the next verse, you find out that he, he nods toward uh, John and said, behold your mother. And the scripture says that John took Mary into his home from that time and cared for her. Um, let's take time to read it. Uh, John chapter 19, verse 25 through 27. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and his disciple, the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto, um, unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. And then he saith, said to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her into his own home. He was speaking to Mary and John. John always refers to himself as either, he never says his name, he says, or he never says me, he says uh, the disciple the Lord loved or the disciple that loved the Lord. And so he was talking about himself. Um, this is uh, kind of odd that uh, he would pick John. John um, was never uh, the loving, caring disciple in the group. James and John were nicknamed by the Lord, Sons of Thunder. And uh, it was those two that had gone um, into a town to find, secure lodging for the disciples and Jesus for the night. They came to an inn, and they, it was in Samaria, and some of the people in Samaria were prejudiced against the Jews, found out they were Jews and told them they couldn't have a room for the night. So they come back and report to Jesus that they wouldn't, rent them a room, and John's first thought was, 
shall we call down fire from heaven and burn them? Now think about that just a minute. Just because the guy that runs the local Motel 6 wouldn't rent him a room for the night, John was willing to burn the whole place. But after walking with the Lord for three years, or three and a half years, John changed. And later, that disciple that was so ready to burn everybody there uh, for that one little um, crime that he thought, later becomes known as the Apostle of Love. John's the one that said, if you, if you say you love God and you hate your brother, you're just a liar. Uh, you're, just, you're just a liar. So he's always preaching about love. God changed him, and Jesus put Mary, his mother, uh, in John's care. Anyway, this is the line that always intrigued me. Woman, behold thy son. It, uh, it was uttered on the cross, so it had to be important. But just consider the other five just for a minute when you, when you think about it. The first one was, Father, forgive them. And then there was, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And then, Woman, behold thy son. Then Jesus said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then he said, I thirst. And then he said, It is finished. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Woman, behold thy son. I have to admit, this line always seemed like it was out of place to me. Or at least it seemed like it was not quite as weighty or important or powerful as the others. It's as if Jesus is taking care of something at the last minute. Uh, think of the other five just a minute. You'll see what I mean. Um, Father, forgive them. The first thing he says on the cross is, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I can't tell you how many times I have knelt across the aisle from somebody that's seeking saving grace and said to them that God would forgive them. Uh, many times they'll look at me and say, Preacher, do you, think, do you really think God can forgive me? And I just immediately say, Sure he will. He'll, he'll forgive you. Uh, he loves you. He, he wants to forgive you. He'll forgive anybody of their sins. Some have looked back at me and said, but you don't know what I've done. And they're serious. You don't know what I've done, preacher. They've walked down that aisle in front of everybody else and knelt there at that aisle and uh, feel like probably the whole world is watching them. They're just as serious as they can be. Preacher, you don't know what I've done. And I always tell them the same thing. I don't want to know what you've done. I don't care what you've done. Jesus forgave those guys on that cross. He forgave those guys that just drove nails in his hands and his feet and just placed a crown of thorns on his head and beat him to death, to, nearly to death with a whip just before that. And he forgave them. If he'll forgive them, he'll forgive you. I think that's the message he's trying to get to us. Then there's the second thing he said to the thief. One thief was still mocking Christ and while he was on the cross. And the other thief, you know, Reckoned with him that they had, um, they did the deed. They're guilty. They deserve what they're getting. And, um, uh, you know, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Wow. For centuries, people have wondered about a passage from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It says this, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, 
between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What could that have meant? Genesis chapter 3 is a chapter of the Bible that's full of sin and judgment. But from this chapter comes the first promise of a Savior. Comparatively speaking, the strike of the serpent, the devil, would be like bruising Christ's heel. The strike of the Messiah upon the kingdom of Satan would be like crushing his head. Now, I ever forget that. We have people that are foolish enough to think that Satan is this and that and to be worshipped and he's mighty in power. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. You believe in God, you do well, the scripture says. The devil also believes and trembles. But for a while on this day, when Jesus was on the cross, it seemed like just the opposite had happened. The devil must have thought he had won. You can almost hear him. Look at him. The former great I am now is just I was. Look at him. God on a cross. I got him. And then he hears that thief on the cross say, you can tell, you can hear in his voice, sorry for his sins, and there is only one hope for him. Nobody else can do anything for him. Not one hope anywhere in the world except Jesus Christ. And he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. You know, until that moment, nobody knew for sure. I've heard him talk about building new airplanes and they put it in a wind tunnel and they they you know they see what it, what it's going to do under certain situations and all that and then they test that thing every way they know how to test it they check the engine and the amount of thrust and what the, what the wingspans do the amount of lift that it will have and everything and they go through all of it and make it as safe as they can and as sure as they possibly can but they tell us that nobody knows for sure until a test pilot gets inside the cockpit and goes down the runway and takes off in that plane. It's kind of like you bought a brand new car and you know it's sparkling clean, there's no dirt on the wheels, there's no dirt on the fenders, there's no dust on it anywhere, there's no bugs on the windshield, there's no, um, if you live in ceiling, there's no goat heads in the carpet and the floor. There's no, there's nothing. It's brand new. But nobody really knows until you put the key in the ignition and you turn the ignition and it starts. Then you know. That's kind of the way it was with Jesus' promise of salvation. Nobody really knew until that thief said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then Jesus said, today. And as he said, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Satan had to know that he made a colossal error. He blew it. Number four is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What an incredible thing to even consider Jesus saying. Feeling forsaken by his heavenly father. Jesus always did that which pleased the father. He never, ever sinned. He never got out of line. He was never unpleasing at all to his father. And to hear him say that, what could he possibly mean? What could have caused such a statement? Why had God turned away? 
The Bible tells us that Jesus took our sin, was nailed to his cross with him. He didn't just take my sin. You know, we throw that word around real easy, but uh, he didn't just take our sin. He took our guilt. Here's somebody who never, ever felt shame, never felt guilt ever in his life. Men have been known to lose their sanity over the shame and guilt of even one sin, one crime. Jesus took all the guilt and all the shame of everybody, took it upon himself, and God looked away. He took my sin, he took my guilt. And God looked away. We owe him everything, don't we? When we say, thank you, Lord, for saving my soul, we need to consider what it meant, how he saved us. The very moment he was saving us, people were saying, you said you could save others. Why don't you save yourself? Prove it. Come down off that cross. Or call your heavenly father and have him come and save you. Jesus already had that talk with the disciples. Put your sword up, he said. I don't have to do this. I could have called all of heaven's angels. We could have the battle of Armageddon right here, right now. But if I save myself, I can't save you. And God looked away. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all of them to me. The thought of that cross and Jesus hanging on that cross for sin, and not his, my sin, your sin, he died for me, to be sure. But also, he died because of me. We've all sinned. He died because of us, as well as dying for us. Number five was, I thirst. That's just heartrending, isn't it? Can you imagine Jesus on the cross, and then he says, I thirst. The only thing he said on the cross that came close to a complaint that's it. That's the closest he came to complaining. I've read where people talked about this, studied this kind of thing, and said that men scream and shriek in agony, yell and scream. Jesus said, I thirst. I, I In my mind, I, the day that he is crucified and he's hanging on that cross, I see a Big crowd there. Golgotha was at a crossroad. People that didn't know there was a crucifixion happening that day may have just happened alone. The sign on his cross was written in three languages, so anybody that did happen alone probably could read it. When a person dies, he should be... Uh, what am I trying to say? It's... Uh, Man should die in dignity and um, with his loved ones around him, holding his hand, saying prayers with him. Jesus was hung on a cross um, and just left there to be a spectacle to everybody. You know, there's a scripture that says, it's one of the oddest scriptures in the Bible. It says 
The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Never have figured that one out. Foolishness. But to us that are saved, it is the power of God. I know what that means. But how could anybody, I don't care if you're saved or you're not saved, if you, if you believe in this, I grew up believing in it. I wasn't saved, but I, I knew there was a Jesus. I knew he died on the cross for me. I, I knew that. How could anybody look at that and think it was foolishness? And maybe the word foolishness doesn't mean exactly what we think it means these days. I think it just meant they look at it and they just see it as nothing. It doesn't register upon them like it does us. Throughout the years, 40-something years in the ministry, we've had Easter pageants and Easter plays, and we've nailed people to the cross in the front of the church. We've nailed, we've had teenagers, you know, young guys coming down the aisle, center aisle of the church carrying a cross, and we put a crown of thorns on their head, and we nailed them to that cross. It sounded so realistically, so realistic, and we lifted them up, you know, between heaven and earth, and, and uh, you think... Uh, uh, how in the world could anybody see this and not run to God, not repent of their sin? How could it happen? But the fact is, way more people have gotten saved on ordinary Sundays in my church that I've pastored than have been saved on Easter Sunday. It just seems like nothing. It just doesn't register the same way with a lost person that it does with a saved person. For us that are saved, it's the power of God. Many times I... I have uh, uh, been held fast to my faith and my call to preach the gospel by having a healthy vision of Jesus on the cross. I've told my congregation this many times. I said, I said, I could tell you some stories. And, and I haven't had the horror stories some pastors have had. I've, I've had it pretty easy. But everybody goes through some things that hurts. And I said, I, I could tell you some stories that would make you cry. And I could tell you that I'm, I'm just not going to preach the gospel anymore because it's just too expensive. It just costs me too much. And I could, I could probably make some of you cry. And you probably would say, I understand, Brother Proc, if you want to quit. I understand it costs too much. But then I, I'm always reminded that one of these days we're going to stand before Jesus. And give account of ourselves to Jesus. And I can just see by faith Jesus standing before me and holding his hands out like this with nail prints in them. And then looking at me and saying, go ahead, tell me that story again. And I just don't think my story is going to hold up. Thank God for a good vision in my heart, your heart's, of what it cost Jesus on the cross to purchase our salvation. We owe him everything. Could he ever ask us anything that was too hard? Could he ever ask us anything that cost us too much? We owe him everything. And so we see Jesus making the fifth statement on the cross, I thirst. And I thought a lot of times, could, couldn't, there be a, couldn't there have been anybody in that crowd that had that much compassion brought him a drink of water? Instead, they... Gave him some vinegar, tested to his lips. I don't know, I, I might have been a coward, but just looking at it from here, I think I would have, if I had to, I would have run across Jerusalem 
till I could have found a well and I'd have drawn him a cup of water and I'd have run back as fast as I could to that cross and I'd have grabbed a ladder on the way and I'd climbed up that ladder until I was right eye to eye with him. I'd have taken my handkerchief and dipped it in that cup of water and I'd have wiped away the blood from his face and from his mouth and I'd have given him a drink and if he said, I need another drink of water, I'd have done it again. Don't you think you would have? I thirst. Closest thing he came to say any kind of complaint. I thirst. Nobody brought him a drink of water. Then the last thing he said was, it is finished. Amazing. There's a song that says, it is finished. The battle is over. It is finished. There'll be no more war. It is finished. The end of the conflict. It is finished. And Jesus is Lord. So anyway, I mentioned those just to say this. I was not assigned any of those statements. I got, woman, behold thy son. Now that you've heard the other five, you see what I mean. I'll be honest with you. I've always had a bit of difficulty with this part of it and it's with this story. It's just almost like it doesn't fit. Compared to the other lines, woman, behold thy son is just different. Maybe... Just maybe, I've been wrong. And if I want my wife to know I said that, I'll tell her myself. <laughs> but maybe I was wrong. Let's take a trip back 2,000 years to the hill of Golgotha. Go with me to an ugly place called Golgotha or Golgotha. It means the place of the skull. It's got to be a really ugly place. People die there. Rome wanted everybody to know, you get out of line, we're going to deal with you quickly and mercilessly. This is how we're going to do it. And so they made a public spectacle of people that are dying. It might help if you close your eyes. I taught a group, of, by the way, I taught a group of fifth and sixth grade kids once. And I did a series on the parables of Jesus. In this particular lesson, I was teaching about the Pearl of Great Price, about this merchant man that uh, bought and sold pearls, and then he finds one pearl that is of great value, and he's willing to spend anything to purchase that pearl. That Pearl of Great Price is Jesus. Since parables are stories that teach us, uh, you know, about natural things that everybody can see, which teach us spiritual things that we can't see as well. And that's, that's what a parable is. And Jesus used that uh, to uh, teach many times. So I described this merchant man to them. And I asked them to close their eyes. I said, I bet you can see if you close your eyes. I, didn't want, I want everybody to get this story that everybody's supposed to be able to see. I want you to see it. I said, this guy makes his living uh, buying and selling pearls. Pearls are found in oysters. Oysters are in the ocean, and so he's on the seashore. I said, he's probably done this for a long time. He's probably not a young man, and I want you to see if you can see him. He's probably not a young man. He probably has a, a beard. I imagine he's got a black beard with some gray in it and uh, not very long beard probably, and and he's 
it's cold on the coast a lot of times, so he's probably got a big black overcoat like you'd see sailors wearing, and and um, maybe he's kind of rough looking. And and um, anyway, I said, uh, "Can you see?" And one of the kids said, one of the boys said, "I can see him." He said, "He looks like you." <laughs> well, I was thinking of Sean Connery, but. About the same thing. <laughs> oh, anyway. Um, so it might help you close your eyes and hear this story. Three men. You're back to Golgotha. And you see three men being crucified there. The very life of three men is ebbing, ebbing away before your eyes. The sight... Smells are horrific. There are sounds of wailing and screaming, cursing, and more. Some on crosses are shrieking and cursing and blaspheming. There are people there making fools of themselves, enjoying what they're seeing. You want to burst in and make them stop, but you can't. You wonder how anyone could enjoy something like this. You want to break through and tell them the importance and the holiness of this event. Then you notice something out of the ordinary. Everyone's attention is on the man in the middle. Do you see? Jesus, the King of Jews, is written on a sign on his cross. What an odd thing. Another odd thing is that one person over there, a lady, you see her? She's crying. She looks out of place. She has no apparent part in this story. Who is she? You look closer and you discover it's Mary. Why is she here? Mary's work was done. Mary doesn't figure in the story. How do I know that? Try reading the story without Mary in it. It reads the same. Or does it? You feel like telling her that she should just go home. She doesn't need to see this. Her presence there makes the story even more painful. Remember when Jesus was a baby, he was brought by his parents into the house of the Lord. He's eight days old. And there's this old man there named Simeon. And he comes up to him and starts to prophesy before Mary and Joseph and this little baby, eight days old. And he said, I can die in peace now. He said, you know, the Lord has spoke to my heart years ago and told me that I would not die until my eyes saw the Messiah. And he recognized by the power of the Holy Spirit that this little baby was the Messiah. And he starts prophesying great things telling how he's going to change the world, how he's going to change people's lives and save people's souls and be their savior and change everything on earth. And then he looks at Mary and he said, Yea, a sword shall pierce through your own soul also. This is the fulfillment of that prophecy. You think, though, this story is not about Mary, but there she is anyway. It's odd because... I think I know why everybody else is there. 
I know why that big brute over there with the hammer and the nails is present. I know why those guys are over there with their whips. I know why that guy thrust his spear into Jesus' side. I know why they put a crown of thorns on his head. I know why those men over there are gambling for his clothes as he's dying. I know why others mock him and spit on him and blaspheme God. But not Mary. Of course, it's clear Jesus is providing for Mary, charging John with her care. Jesus is a true gentleman. He's taking time to prepare, provide for his mother. But that seems like a little bit of last-minute housekeeping, doesn't it? The other five statements could only have been made on the cross. That's it. Only time he could have said those things for them to be important was for him to say them while he was on the cross dying. But not this line about Mary. He could have told John a day or two before. He was sitting right by his side. When I'm gone, Jesus knew what was coming. Judas comes by and, and Jesus had said, one of you is going to betray me. And they start, all start questioning, is it I, is it I? And then Judas said, is it, is it I? And Jesus said, whoever, when I dip this bread, whoever I give this piece of bread to, that's the one. And he dipped it and he gave it to Judas and told him to do what he's going to do, do it quickly. So Jesus was fully aware of what was going on. John was right here. He could have said, after I die, I'm assigning you to take care of my mom. But he didn't. He waited for this day. It does seem a little odd, but upon closer inspection, you start to view it differently. Because for 4,000 years, prophets have been foretelling this event. 4,000 years. Men have over and over and over again sacrificed for the same old sins. Every year. Sacrifice again and again and again. The prophets would come along and say, there's one coming that will sacrifice once for all. God's lamb that will take away the sin of the world. No more sheep or bulls or pigeons or doves. One man offering once for all. And since that day, 2,000 years or so, we've been looking back at it. Everything focuses on the cross. History past, present, future draws a bead on the cross. Everyone must have wondered what he would say on the cross. I was 15 years old in 1969. On July 20th, a man named Neil Armstrong was the first man to step on the moon. I remember a lot of people thought the world would end if a man ever, human being ever stepped on the moon. It was kind of a, it was a very interesting time. It was kind of a scary time, too. Everybody wondered when he stepped out onto the lunar surface what his first words would be. And he said, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And everybody remembers those words 51 years later. What will Messiah, the Savior, say on the cross? 
the first two sentences are very powerful, just what everybody would expect. But then something very odd happens. He changes the subject completely. I imagine the scene going like this. Someone is memorizing the words, he says, and then Jesus changes the subject. And everyone who has ever written anything or ever preached a sermon or ever told a story knows you stay on the subject. Or at least that's what we try to do. But upon closer inspection, I don't think it was out of place at all. Maybe was, much more was being said than woman, behold your son. I see it this way. It's like he says those first two things, earth-shaking, life-changing things. No other two phrases mean as much to mankind than those two statements. It could only be said on the cross, and Jesus said them. I think he said those first two things, and then it, to me it's like everything goes quiet. It's like all the air has gone out of that crowd. And then dead silence. That's when he tells John, take care of my mother. But is that it? It just didn't seem to fit here if that's it. There has to be more to it than that. Here's what I think. For those of you who feel like life has passed you by, I think Mary was there for you. I think Mary was there for all of us. We'd love to have told her, go home. You can't unsee what you're about to see. But I think she was there for us. Sometimes you feel like life has passed you by. When you feel like you never were part of the main team, you might even feel like a nobody. Now, I don't feel like a nobody, but... Uh, a month ago, I went to a funeral of an old friend, and I was there with Pastor White and Pastor Jared. We got there. The only seats that were available were right on the front, 15 feet from the casket. Everybody passing by the casket had to pass by us after they did. I don't know how big that auditorium was. 500, you think 500, maybe 700, I don't know. It was packed. Every seat was full. And everybody that came by seemed, seemed like would say something, but many of them stopped, and they would go to Pastor White first. Everybody in the place knew Brother White, by the way. Everywhere he goes, everybody knows him. So they all stop, and they come to him first. And they say, Brother White, man, it's good to see you. You're doing such a great job down Grove. You just you just done such a great job there. God bless you. I just always appreciated you and loved you. You know, they all knew him. They all had to say something. And then they looked next to my son-in-law, Jared. And they said, Jared, man, I just keep hearing great things about what you're doing and sealing. Got those young people fired up and great crowds and you're just doing great. I just hear great stuff all the time. And then they looked at me, and here's what they did. <laughs> you ready? It goes pretty quick. You ready? They look at me, and they go, ah. <laughs> I'm not lying. Over and over and over that day, 
I think it took 45 minutes or an hour for people to pass by the, the casket. And uh, that little scenario played over and over and over. So some, I know what it's like to not be known or noticed in a crowd. And you might just feel that way too. You might think that, uh, you know, uh, you're never going to preach a sermon. You're not going to be on the platform. Nobody asks you to sing or nobody, you know. And you may just feel like you're nobody. But you're not. I believe Mary was present that day for you and for me. Mary might have felt that way. You know, Mary got it all started. But as you read the gospel, you might just notice that you haven't read anything about Mary for a while. When it got started, in the King James Version of the Bible, Mary, when they're telling the story of Christ's birth, Mary is the 15th word mentioned. Matthew 8, 1 and 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary. Fifteenth word mentioned when telling the story of Christ's birth. For a while, no story was told about him without mentioning her. But now she had done her part and is left only with her pain. So I think Mary is singled out here for a very definite reason. He was letting her know, I see you. He didn't say those words, but that's what he's saying to Mary. I see you. John, take care of my mother, meant thank you. You helped me fulfill my purpose. I bet he sees every one of you right now. I bet there are people listening to me right now who feel they've been put up on a shelf. I'm 66 years old. Starting to feel that way sometimes myself. We had an old man attended my church where I used to pastor. Precious man of God. Loved him with all my heart. And um, he had been a deacon in that church for years. He was that guy that would come by my office and say, "Is there? we got any kids this year that can't afford to pay their tuition to go to youth camp? And I always say, there'll be some, there'll be two or three or four, there are always, always that many. And he'd say, I won't pay that for all of them. And then he'd say, don't tell anybody. Never would take any credit for anything. But he was that guy. Anytime. When we moved to uh, Garber, the church didn't have a, a parsonage that was fit to live in. And, and uh, they needed one. A house came available. Brother B.B. just pulled out his checkbook and bought it. Three-bedroom, brick home, about 12 years old. Nice house. I still live in it. I bought it 10 years ago, as a matter of fact. Bought it for the church. But he just got his checkbook out and bought it that day. That's the kind of guy he was. Church can pay me back if they want to. We paid him back part of it, a fourth of it. He paid for the rest of it. But I remember he came by my office one day. He, 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 he got kind of bad shape, and um, he wanted us to choose another person to be a deacon in the church in his place. And he came by my office one day, and I guess he'd gotten to think about that a little bit, and he said, 
and he's almost in tears. And he said, I don't feel like I'm ready to be put up on a shelf just yet. And boy, I didn't want to, I didn't want to make him think I was putting him up on a shelf. And I don't know if it's kosher or not, but I said, you're going to be a deacon in this church as long as you live. You're always going to be on this church board. We still need you. Some people feel like that. They've been put up on a shelf. Some people feel like they're no longer important. Others carry the load that they were once honored to bear, but not now. Others are younger. Others are stronger. Others have fresh ideas. I believe I have a word for you from Jesus on the cross. And like with Mary, in the midst of all the uproar, and seemingly more important people and things, everything goes silent. And that word from Jesus is, I still see you, and I love you, counting on you. I need you. I see you, I think he's saying to us, when you're scared. I see you when you don't know how you're going to make it. I see you when you feel threatened by some new plague. I see you when you feel overlooked. I see you when you feel overwhelmed. I see you when you feel passed over. And I think he goes beyond that. I think he's saying to us, I see you and I need you. I've got great plans for you that you may not be able to see yet. They're still glorious. And I love you. I want to say a prayer with you again as I close. Father, we all want to be on the, the team that's doing things and breaking ground and all of that. And it's easy sometimes. There are some of us that are talented in this and that and different things and ways to move crowds and that's not us maybe. And we feel like we don't count for very much. Well, we're not important. But actually, there are people that look to each one of us and know us. They love us. They're our families. They're looking to us and hoping that we're going to stay strong. Hoping that we won't let them down. Hoping they can always count on us. Hoping that they can see us live through good times and bad times and come away knowing, hey, this thing is real. This works. I've seen dad, I've seen mom live through tough times and good times. And they kept, you couldn't shake them from their faith. They kept loving, loving Jesus no matter what. You have people that look at you that way and need to hear from you and know you. And know that your faith is real. And that it's safe for them to trust God in everything. Father, I ask you to strengthen everyone that hears these words this morning. May they feel the presence of the Lord. May they just somehow in their spirit hear the Holy Spirit say, I see you. I know where you live. I know what you're going through today. I know what you're facing. I know what you're feeling. I see you. And I love you. Maybe they'll say to them, maybe the Holy Spirit will say to them, a long time ago, you trusted me. I'm the same today as I was then. 
You promised me you would go anywhere. If I'd go with you, I'm going with you. I see you. I see you. Ask your blessings be upon them, Lord. Fill their hearts. We're living in perilous times. And our hearts are troubled. We're discouraged, depressed, afraid. A lot of things face us. We feel feelings that maybe we haven't felt before. It's an odd time, but a great time to confess, I still love the Lord. I still love Jesus. I'm going to make it. I'm going all the way through with Jesus. Blessings on my pray today in Jesus' name. I'll just close you with this verse. 2 Thessalonians 3.16 says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. Amen. God bless you.